Annie AK. And I'm Melissa. And together we want to welcome you to Still Great Bob. If this is your first time joining us, together we are watching AMC's Mad Men trying to answer the question, is it Still Great Bob? This week we're discussing Season 1, Episode 2. This episode is called Ladies' Room. It was written by Matthew Weiner and directed by Alan Taylor. The episode originally aired on July 26, 2007. The hit song at the time was the Plain White Tees' Hey There Delilah, which had just dethroned Rihanna's umbrella. Ella. Ella. Hey. You, you can't just say umbrella. You have to, you have to do those We're going to keep right? making this joke forever. <laughs> the hit movie that weekend that technically opened the next day was The Simpsons Movie, which opened to $74 million at the box office and unseated last week's number one, a movie called I Now Pronounce You Chuck and Larry, which is the first time someone has talked about that movie in probably about 12 years. This was the first episode that was shot, shot excuse me, in Los Angeles. The pilot had been shot in New York. The pilot was also shot in April of 2006, and this was shot in April of 2007. Melissa, why don't you tell us what happened on this episode of Mad Men? On this episode of Mad Men, Betty deals with numb hands, Peggy navigates office lunch hour, and Don tries to determine what women want. Because apparently Mel Gibson didn't answer that question. Okay, so all three movies that we've mentioned already today, I've seen. It's important to me, but everybody knows that. Oh, 2007, you are a time. So, ladies' room. Ladies' room. Do we want to talk about the title first? So why do we think it's called Ladies' Room? Well, Matt, I think it's because we're talking about the ladies in this episode. I did think it was a good title. Ladies' Room really fits with, like you said, it's bookended with scenes of women in the restroom doing, like, you know, girls in the bathroom thing. Um, And then the whole episode, I mean... Don is just on this journey of trial and error trying to figure out what women want. The ladies' room is kind of a sacred place for women, especially in bars when you're not having Mm -hmm. a great time or if you go on a double date with your boyfriend's friend and his new girlfriend and you are feeling kind of awkward, like going to the restroom together and like having a little chit chat is a place that, you know, you can relax a little bit and that there's a certain common ground there, I think. And everybody knows the drunk girls in the bathroom become best Absolutely. friends. But I think it speaks to Don kind of looking for what women want, for the secrets, trying to uh, break into that sacred place, which I think can be, you know, the ladies room can be symbolic of that, uh, you know, secret headspace or heart space, if you want to say that, of women. Absolutely. And I think, um, I don't know if you've heard it before, but I've certainly heard men before being like, I don't need to know what goes on there. I'd like to think it doesn't happen. Uh, so it's kind of something that's put yeah. out from, uh, from, from their minds. And, uh, it, like you said, it is like a sacred space. It's where women kind of bond almost and can interact without the men overhearing, you know, and, and this is just talking in like the strict, old-fashioned gender traditional roles or whatever um but uh even then you're and you know there's like this camaraderie of like oh my god this is what we're dealing with i'll help you you help me um you know like uh what's roger's wife's name mona 
Mona helping Betty out with the putting, the putting on the lipstick. They're like, this is your war paint. This is helping you keep your man. This is you being beautiful. And we're going to go out there and present ourselves and be perfect once more. You know, I really like that. And I think the idea, because we go to the ladies room at Sterling Cooper a couple different times over the course of the episode, the idea of like getting it together, like uh, where you can find camaraderie and, and, and being weak too. And, and the, the crying in the bathroom as opposed to not on the floor when you're dealing with life and the terribleness of, of that office, I think. Definitely done from that. my <laughs> non my my non experience kind of feels like it rings true. So Yeah, that's a space where you can do that because also you can wash your face and put your makeup back on and make sure everything's okay. Um and it's also like it's also occasionally a sanctuary it's a place that I've definitely tried to, I've used to avoid someone. Oh, yeah. Oh, okay. So there's that. It's our safe, If it's, it's our safe space. Kind of. I've definitely cried in the bathroom at work before. <laughs> so that's Well, I mean, there's tish, the tissues are already <laughs> right there and they just keep coming. So it's right. perfect. <laughs> if men cry at work, where do they go? Just, they well, just my wheel office it was lucky enough to have a... Yeah. So my office had a non-denominational prayer room and I went in there and cried once because I knew no one would be in there because people go into the bathroom. So that's a thing. That seems like a really comforting place to have just a nice work cry. Yeah, it was nice. Was it dark in there too? Like I think I lit it. It wasn't. It or like dimly mood light. Yeah, yeah. It was. It was. It was kind of as the lighting was like as intentional as possible, Um, but. Yeah, no, that's so, it's a thing that happens, but just not in the bathroom because, you know, someone might see Other me. Other men would see you. Yeah, no, ex- yeah, ex- that's exactly right. When I say someone might see me, I'm, I'm really talking about other people that would use the men's room. So that's right. a thing. But not to make it about me. I was going to say, I saw Daniel Sloss, this um, young Scottish comedian. Well, I guess he's not that young. He's like late 20s now. He um, has a show called X that he's bringing back for the Edinburgh Film Festival. I saw him when he was in New York. And then when he did the exact same show in D.C. because I have a problem. He was discussing about how he would see his girl, you know, his female friends go to the bathroom in groups. And he's like, I want that. But it's really awkward asking your guy friends if they want to go to the bathroom with you. Especially ah. after he's fucked around with them and told them that he loved them. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Sorry, that got me. You would like a show. It's a lot. That particular show is actually a lot about toxic masculinity coming from the perspective of a self-aware toxic man. No, it, I, and I think it's interesting though, like to contrast the conversations that happen both like both in the episode and in life um in the in the titular ladies room it's the titular room um <laughs> as opposed to we the episode starts and you have the sterlings and the drapers at this kind of work rapport building and everyone's very lubricated and Roger's being very open with what's going on in the Sterling household. And then later as the episode advances, Don tries to reference that conversation and Roger's like immediately like closed off and like, Oh, you must be mistaken. Right. Talking about Margaret's, I think Roger and Mona's daughter's name going to, to see a psychologist. It's interesting that when Don tries to seek out to his, a male kind of peer, it's kind of, you know, big brother type figure to reference and kind of have that connection. He's rebuffed, which is contrasted with 
what we're talking about here in terms of the the titular ladies room, yeah, right? There's definitely so. like that immediate connection that goes on. Um, but one thing about that is that one, Roger, Roger is kind of liquored up. Um, but like Betty pointed out that she felt like he was kind of inviting Don to, um, to share back. So is, is Roger just sober when he makes that moment, when he has that moment to be like, I don't know what you're talking about. Or is it just a reaction to the fact that Don gave him nothing in return? So we've just closed this door. That's a, that is a good question. I want to read it that he was, you know, liquored up and said something that he wishes he wouldn't. So now he's just choosing to, you know, gaslight Don <laughs> instead of just be honest about him. Because um, with Pete gone, Roger is getting the title of the worst <laughs> from me for this episode. So I'm not in the mood to give him um, the benefit of the doubt in this situation. <laughs> Why don't we talk about the woman we meet today uh, in episode one Betty was an unnamed figure who just happens to look amazing waking up in the middle of the night in bed uh, but here we get to with all the cigarettes and now we get to actually like one learn her name to kind of see her side of everything really everything that she is and revealing everything beyond this kind of perfect little veneer this uh you know, perfect nuclear family that she and Don have apparently created. What do we think of Betty? So if I can jump in there respectfully, um, I had a really strong emotional reaction to Betty specifically in this episode, mm -hmm. which I kind of actually took me by surprise. And this is why rewatching and re-examining art that we even feel like we know so well can be really powerful. Um, I've historically had a complicated relationship with Betty. And I think in terms of the, the discourse at the time too, she was definitely one of those characters that I think was difficult for people to, to connect with and empathize with for like really not so great internalized misogyny reasons. Like I haven't, I haven't watched Breaking Bad, but I think there's a character in Breaking Bad that kind of held a similar place in the the kind of fan discourse. Um, and my initial read on on Betty at the time was heavily influenced by my like at the time for The Great Gatsby. So she was very much like a Daisy Buchanan type character. Like had, and I, I still think there are some of those elements there. Um, the idea of being kind of raised, you know, a certain way and and well bred and all of that stuff, but. I don't think previously I gave Betty enough. I didn't recognize her struggles enough. I, I think I felt sympathy for her. But now at this point, 12 years later, 10 years later, um, I have more empathy for her. Mm. Right. And as, as she goes through and the, the minor accident with the car while you're, you know, suffering from anxiety and, and probably a depressive episode. It's like, I see myself in that a lot more than I would have 12 years ago. And just what kind of really broke me watching the episode was where she ends up having that, that talk with, with Don and it's that I'm okay. Do I need to see someone? And then before she's been telling him like, Oh, there's not a stigma anymore, but they're kind of still there is especially like for her and getting over that hump and having that conversation the why am I unhappy when I have so much it just like broke me in a way that like 
it hadn't before. So it's interesting to go back and view this as a 33 year old, as opposed to, you know, a 22 year old or whatever it was. So, yeah. Um, I think you're right. There was a lot of maligning her, uh, January Jones's performance as Betty. There was people who were calling her kind of cold. And admittedly, I don't always find her to be the most captivating performer on a screen in other projects she's been in. But um, there's definitely a kind of softness to her and a and um, a girlishness to most of uh, who she was in this episode t- to me that I'd completely forgotten about. It had been so long because most of my impressions of her is the person that she becomes later on in the show. Um, and sometimes she kind of wields that actually as her own personal weapon, which I thought was really interesting because there's that scene where she's in bed with Dawn trying to war, you know, playfully worm out of him something about his past and trying to, but you could see her, you know, whenever he's looking away, whenever she turns to turn off the light, when he's asleep, you know, you could see that around her all like just completely in her eyes that she, She's not an idiot. She knows something is off and that it's affecting her. She doesn't know what. She doesn't know how it is. But she knows something's happening. And I kind of really appreciated that about her performance. Right off the bat, I feel like Betty is the most... I don't know if well-rounded is the word I'm looking for. But I feel like we know Betty the best right off the bat. Other you know, outside of all of these characters, um, we kind of go through this journey with her in the first episode. Um, in the first bathroom scene, when we see her hand shaking and she's struggling to hold on to her lipstick, that started ringing alarm bells mm-hmm. um, in my head just because I'm so keenly aware of the way that um, women's uh, medical health is treated um, in the media and in real life. Um, It kind of grates on me to see women's health ignored in the media because it is often ignored in real life. And so I, you know, was a little weary going into the rest of the episode. And I mean, it, it goes places that I don't love, but I think that's the point. So, you know, nothing too egregious, but, um, when she's talking to Don about it and she says, like, um, I told him what happened. So that's at the beginning of the episode. And so you start thinking, oh, I wonder what happened. I wonder what type of, you know, trauma she's dealing with. And then when she's in the bathroom, she tries to tell Mona um, that her mother died and she gets cut off there. And so you see her trying to be open and trying to be honest. And she encourages that in dawn and then when she finally does see the therapist you know she basically lays out uh you know she's anxious since her mother died she says we're we're all lucky to be here um and i just feel like we get a really well-rounded view of who she is she's this she's this woman who is like you said living in this seemingly perfect family and perfect household um but something traumatic happened to her the loss of her mother and no one is giving her the space to talk about that and that's affecting her um what we believe at the moment that's affecting her in physical ways which feels uh really really true and and real to me and i appreciate that we have one character who seems at this point like an entire whole person and I'm happy that it's Betty especially because of the way that we see Don treat her 
I love that. Or treat their marriage. I love that. I love that you have this like almost opposite reaction to her as what I remember when the show first aired. And it's so interesting you point out the mother thing because this is something she kind of like says so lightly and it's almost easy to gloss over just like Mona did. And we talked about the ladies room being the safe space and this was her trying to open up about it. But like Mona just sees those good, good lips and and Mm -hmm. she's trying to tell Danya, uh, you know, there's not as much of a stigma about going to see a psychiatrist now. But like, I mean, even 2019, there's still some people who think that it's a complete insult to everyone around you if you say that you need to see someone. Um, so it's, it's that's super, that's really, really interesting, I think. That line about there's not as much of a stigma anymore, like physically yeah. hurt me. She yeah, um, and she says it in that way. And I, that's so where people yeah. try to be all like, "No, it's totally casual that I believe this thing," but really, they're trying to say this is a really important thing that I need you to hear. Yeah, and I feel kind of emotional about this. So I'm just gonna say it and get it out. But the stigma that still exists in 2019 around taking care of your mental health and the mental health of the people around you still kills people. Absolutely. So to hear this being said, like, oh you know, therapy is solved in 1960 and to see the havoc that this wreaks on people that everybody knows, like everybody I'm sure has a personal story about this and it just really hurt me. <laughs> so mm-hmm. yeah. And that's also why Roger's the worst because he makes this comment about how therapy is this year's candy pink stove and like you are selling candy pink stoves. So just decide yeah. to tell people that they can go to therapy and maybe in 2019 people aren't dying. Yeah, he's, maybe. he's he like Joan are really stuck in that older mentality. It's crazy because I, I, you know, I wasn't, I didn't have a, a strong adverse reaction to Roger in the first episode, but like, I hate him now. <laughs> <laughs> he knew exactly how to piss you off. He just did the things that are personally offensive to me that I don't get over well, which is um, trivializing the importance of mental health care. Mm. So. He also makes a joke about um, having a female president, which kind of hurt me. Oh, yeah. That hurts now in the 2019. <laughs> yeah. It really hurt. There was one moment that I wanted to ask you guys about, uh, or especially you, Melissa, about when Betty was talking about she was fretting over the bruise on Sally's face after the accident and like blaming herself and how hard it seemed to hit her that she may have like caused a scar on her daughter's beautiful, beautiful, perfect face. There's so much about like perfection and, and our faces and what we reflect out, especially the female characters in this episode. What do you think about uh, Betty in that moment? It's hard not to just think like you're a ridiculous human, but you have to put yourself in the 1960s and in the way that Betty herself was raised and the way that they're raising their children. And it's just crazy to think about the fact that um, scarring on a little girl would essentially be the end of their life. And like she even says, oh, it would be fine if it was whatever the young boy's name is. It would be fine if it was him because boys are allowed to have scars and that would be um, like a, a, a virtue almost. But it was just... Yeah, I mean, that that really puts into perspective the changes in attitude, I think, between mm-hmm. now and then. What about you, Matt? 
So what struck me about that was, like, it was two things. But first of all, to the point about Sally and Bobby, just again, yes, the the gendered differences that the kind of whole show is exploring. But the idea that, and again, that men, Bobby, boy, he's like, they're allowed to carry things. They're allowed to have scars, like their hurts and their pains. And it's like, yes, at the time, they're they're expected to carry it in a way, and we can bring this up again later when we talk about Don and the whole like mysterious cowboy archetype. But like, it's okay for Bobby to have scars. It's okay for Bobby to have pain. It's okay for him to then manage that because he can show his strength as, as having overcome that. Whereas Sally can't have anything. She can't even like have this hint of this mystery of like, Oh, let's unpack him. And what makes Jamie Lannister tick? It's like the, no, you have to be in Betty's perception. Perfect. And then only like, you know, talk to your your husband's boss's wife in the restroom and say, hey, my mother just died and kind of open the door for a real human interaction and then wait for them to maybe come through it. Right. So I, that's that's what struck out to me with that. Secondly, um, in my my episodic reevaluation of, of Betty Draper, um, the disasterizing or cat- the, the making of a catastrophe of something that was kind of a deal, but not a huge deal, really rang true to me as someone mm-hmm. where I think Betty's kind of mental health is in her headspace, where everything becomes a disaster and you do make make it worse than it is. So I think that, that for me, that talk with Don and that observation has two levels. I think it speaks to mm-hmm. the differences in how men and women are allowed to carry pain, whether visibly or invisibly, and then also... It's another kind of data point to those are both really really good where Betty is at in her mental health journey. Um, I didn't even think about the uh, the catastroph. I can't say the word catastrophizing. Yeah, yeah. No, no, no. And you mentioned that is a hundred percent absolutely like a very anxiety disorder thing to do. Um, and as for the other thing about being perfect, you could see that reflected in how Betty lives her life and how. You know, you see her even when she's going to bed, her hair is still just perfectly formed. She has her beautiful nightgown with this beautiful, airy, fluffy robe thing that she just loads into a room like she's about to waltz on some kind of movie set. And I thought it was um, interesting the way that all that came up in when she also keeps trying to reference her mom and her mother's passing. And you're like, the mom probably is the one where this all came from. Not the first person started it, but probably like another link in the chain that just like passes these ideas down and um, kind of inadvertently put Betty in this position where she can't handle this, you know, maintaining this perfect ideal that she's creating because she feels like she has to because everything is completely over if she is in any way flawed or imperfect or shows, you know, any weakness at all. I'm thinking about... I don't want to give Dawn too much credit, and I'm sure that you're right, but we haven't necessarily seen in-universe any signs that if she didn't keep this whole thing together, um, we haven't seen any signs that it would be a catastrophe in their marriage. And I'm only thinking about this because Don is actually pretty casual about this whole car accident thing. And he makes that, it's not a joke really but he likes when the kids are still at the table he says like you know I hate the way you drive and it's like offhand and kind of casual and it's a little patronizing because it's not her driving that caused this accident but um 
that is kind of like a jokey thing. It kind of seems like maybe like just an inside thing in their marriage. But then he gets the kids leave the table and he gets up real close to her and he says, what happened? And it doesn't seem like he's blaming her to me. It doesn't seem like he is um, like being aggressive with her now. Okay, now tell me what happened. Like he never says like you could have killed our kids or like anything like that. It just seems like he, you know, makes kind of a joke with her to the kids. And then when it's private between them, he asks her, you know, what happened? I know it wasn't nothing. Like, tell me, you can be honest with me. So I kind of wonder, I mean, these, I, this is all ruined kind of by the end of the episode. But, <laughs> <laughs> but like during these scenes, I was thinking like, all right, like, so Don is a, sh- he's a shitbag because he has a girlfriend, but also he seems in parts of this episode, like a participating partner. Like there's something deeper in their marriage than what we maybe have seen yet. Yeah. Cause on, I mean, on the one hand it can be just, you know, he's a little paternalistic, which, you know, compared to uh, John Hamm is has never really been a young looking guy. He's always just looked eternally like 38. <laughs> <laughs> and and January Jones, very, you know, I don't remember how old she was when this show um, first was shot, but she is a younger looking woman. As I mentioned earlier, she has a very girlish way of speaking. So there is like that kind of dynamic almost. So it can also just be him being like, I'm the man of the house. I fix the problems. I take care of my wife. But you know, the fact that her being unable to fix this problem, that maybe there is some other underlying non-biological problem that's causing all this, and maybe it's something related to her emotional and mental state, kind of does shake him. Like, maybe I'm not as good a husband as I can be. Maybe I'm not good enough, No, even though I've achieved everything that I have been. And I think that's something that both of them are dealing right, with right now. We've achieved perfection. We've done everything that we're supposed to do. Why am I not happy? Why is my partner not Mm. happy? Why is something still off? Why am I looking other places to fulfill myself and to share myself with? Yeah, and then like there's that scene where we think we talked about it earlier. But the do I need to see someone? And like, am I not okay where they're at the the kitchen table? And Don just kind of stands behind her, and he just like really kind of softly says like I don't know maybe or something like that like and kisses the top of her head that was like a sweet moment when they're coming back from from dinner when they're driving and she's like oh dinner and my my gimlets or whatever she was drinking didn't mix like that seems like an okay relationship moment so it's Mm -hmm. just yeah I don't is Don playing a part when he's at home? Is he playing the dutiful father, the doting husband where he literally buys her a watch. So he is doting. Um, and then he's like, I don't know. I just, there's like so many Dons and like, I don't think any of these versions of himself are fake. I do think they are a part of him, but they're just so separate um, and disassociated from each other. There's absolutely no integration and he has no idea how to be Don Draper. He has no idea how to be all of these encompass, you know, all these things that encompass these different parts of him. Um, But that was a really good moment. I did like that moment. Like sometimes that I don't know, whatever you want is fine can sound can be a frustrating thing to hear depending on the context. But in this one, it was just like it was him actually asking her and letting her say it, even though sometimes and in a way just validating like Yes, whatever you're feeling right now, it's not a fake thing. It's not a thing you're making up. This is a thing that you can tell me 
if it's real or not. And I just thought that must have been such a relief for as simple and small a moment as it was. Yeah, especially after earlier in the episode when they're talking about her seeing a psychiatrist the first time, she tells him whatever you think is best. And then when she, you know, they're talking about again and she's concerned about it again, she asked, you know, she'd already told him she would do whatever he thought was best. And then she asked him, like, do I need to see someone? And he admits to her that he doesn't know and basically, you know, puts the ball back in her court to decide. But I thought it was interesting to note that I, that's really the first time we see Don um, with any vulnerability with her at all is when he admits that he mm-hmm. doesn't know what she should do. And it it's after this entire day of asking everybody what women want, you know, kind of trying to figure this thing out. He actually finally asks her for real what she wants <laughs> as opposed to telling her. Yeah, because I hated the first moment she said that she asked him that. And he's just like, I are you are you not happy with our perfect home and our perfect family and your perfect face? And it's re- how can you just say like, yeah, yeah, because he just looks at her in this way that's just like that either kind of tells her you got to say yes, because if not, it'll hurt me. And what's also frustrating, and this is just from a mental health perspective, is Anxiety, which it seems like what she's dealing with here, um, doesn't equal depression. And depression Mm -hmm. doesn't equal that you're not, like, happy on paper with the things in your life. Like, none of those things equate to each other. But for him to be acting like she doesn't have the right to be anxious about you know, her mortality in the wake of her mother's death that no one allows her to talk about. Mm -hmm. Like, that is just... Yeah, I mean, you kind of have to think that maybe her mother was one person that she actually connected to or felt some connection to. We don't see her talking to... We see her talking to um, Mona at the beginning of the episode, who's someone she's... You can tell she's just kind of first meeting. You have her talking to... Her friend was her friend's name. I wrote it down. France, Francine. I Francine, think. who yeah. was played by Anne Dudek, a.k.a. Cutthroat Bitch, House MD Forever. Um, <laughs> she's, which I think was actually, I think she was actually on House uh, at the same time that this aired. But um, you see her talking about that and they just kind of just, it's just gossiping. Uh, and then you see her talk to Don, and... It's not like a huge wealth of relationships of, and, and people she can really rely on or open up to. And as we can see, she doesn't. She, she, she tries. And also... But no one else is... Th- oh, no, sorry. Just the first time that... I think that this is a, a point to that her mother was someone that she didn't... Or that she did confide with and that she was closer with than we see her be with anyone else is that when they mention it the first time when she's talking about visiting her doctor, she says, I told him what happened. Mm. So this is a known enough event that they don't even have to say what it is between them for Don to know what she's talking about. I told him what happened. Hmm. I think I... I think when I watched that, I took it to mean the car incident, but you're probably right. 
Oh, yeah. I mean, that might be true, too. I just assume that she hadn't seen a doctor <laughs> since the car accident. I don't know. It doesn't matter. I mean, it might. <laughs> Maybe. I don't remember much from anything. Well, and I, I think what's I, th- I think it could be both, right? Because mm-hmm. I was... As a smug book reader, I was doing some some reading of a, a Madman Companion that I've was been flipping through after we we kind of record to as a rubric. Anyways, um, and it's uh, by Matt Zoller Sites, and the in the preface he was talking about Madman having dream logic a lot and kind of functioning on this level that is 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 pretty much as close to the subconscious as as is realistic mm. and not being straight up in a dream. So I think. A multi a multi leveled line reading like that um, is is interesting, and I think probably the lens that we should be looking at a lot of this, a lot of these interactions through. Mm-hmm. So, well, I'm so glad you're able to dig into Betty. I know it's and it's just like it seems not crazy, but it you know it it seems I guess special that we have so much to talk about with her. And I mean, I said this earlier, but just like such a a distinct understanding of her as a character after one episode. It's just, I don't know. I don't remember having this strong reaction to her throughout really watching any of the show when it first aired, let alone the very second episode. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And her so first going introduction. back to like that idea of Don being a genuine version or side of Don that he is in, in the different realms he's in. Mm-hmm. I and I mean it's it's his second interaction with Midge in the episode, and and we can talk about the the first one for sure because I think there's lots to dive in there. But when the Drapers come into the city for the psychologist or psychiatrist appointment, while Betty's with the psych with the therapist. Don goes to Midge's and she finds him kind of sitting out there and he tries to talk about like, oh, I took the day off. I'm not feeling well. Betty's seeing a therapist. And then she's like, don't bring that here. And they have this really interesting exchange about kind of, I think, Midge's um, mission statement or, or motto or or ethos that she lives by about living in the moment and, and how that's what's authentic and, and everything else. So... Do you think Don didn't know how to process what was probably or, or what or his genuine kind of concern for what Betty was going through? So he ran to, to Midge and kind of this escapist fantasy. Is that what like I just was curious about that, what you guys thought about that choice? I mean, a lot of his relationships seem to be like safe spaces, his relationship with his wife and his family. That's meant to be like the concrete, un, like unchanging thing. The thing he can rely on, his anchor, that no matter how like far flung he gets with these relationships or with work, he can always just like come back to, you know, uh, the, te- the thing that tethers him to reality in the sense that I am who I am. I'm good at my job. I'm good at being a man. Um, but this whole thing seems to have shaken him because maybe he's not maybe he's not taking care of his wife the way he should. Maybe he is taking, you know, he's doing such a shitty job that his wife crashes a car and their kids get hurt. So, I mean, it might be an escape thing. It might be a way to just deal with it. But at the same time, she's probably, Midge is probably the closest thing he has to, like, a friend 
in a weird fucked up way. Yes. Yes. That he pays for with insects. I do think there is some idealized escapist fantasy image she must have of her because when she, you know, when he notices the TV and everything and she starts getting really excited about the super commercial thing that probably everyone was watching, like uh, America's Funniest Home Video type thing. He's just like, all right, I'm putting my socks on, I'm getting out. And it's just, I think he was more mad at the fact that the image, the dream was sort of ruined at first and he was getting, he was taking it out on her. And of course, when the face of repeatedly conditional love, quote unquote love, affection, whatever you want to call it, she just gives in and plays along with his little quiet tantrum and doesn't make anything of it. She's just like, oh, I'm fine and carefree. I was like, no, you actually just played into his hands. Right. And he, the look that he gives her after she tosses that TV out the window, which it's funny because when I first saw her do that, I was like, yeah, okay, don't let him like make you feel bad about stuff. Like throw the TV out the window. Like don't listen to this shit. But then on the other hand, like you're 100% right. Like even my reaction of being like, hell yeah, throw a TV out the window. Like that is playing into him, just like you said. Um, and the look that he gives her, he's like laughing at her like, oh, silly midge. I can't believe this crazy person threw a TV out the window. Mm-hmm. And it's like kind of like, you know, the moment like endears them to each other. But I mean, this relationship is fucked up. And I think that we're seeing that more and more now. Oh, no. Is Midge the manic pixie dream girl? Oh, oh, oh. Oh, no. <laughs> I mean, she's wearing... Four different wigs in this episode. She's, um, <laughs> oh no, she's kind of actually, uh, no, you know, I was thinking with her walking in the hallway while he's on the floor and she's got that dress on and the wig and talking about, you know, losing her keys and everything. She actually kind of reminded me of, um, like a Sally Bowles kind of figure right. coming in from the cabaret and like, oh, I'm so carefree and wild, but just still looking genuinely to be loved for real and to be fulfilled but instead it's just another line it's like a line of men waiting to use me to fix their own problems with my image listen to the song it'll change your life let's go to the gaslight or something (laughs) like that (laughs) yeah she's definitely uh this person who port if not portrays but is allowed to portray or even feel like she's this person of power. You know, we saw in the first episode, she's like, I've got my rules, back off. Um, but I think we're seeing here that she's not as in control as we were originally originally led to believe. Fucking yeah, Dawn. I, right? Well, she tries to maintain this, because they have the conversation like, I can't tell if you have everything or nothing. She says, I live in the moment. And at that moment, what was going to benefit her was proving to Don that she didn't care about this TV. But Mm -hmm. if she's living in the moment, why does she care if he's mad at her? Yeah. That's a really good point. Well, and, like, is Don mad that she had railed on, you know, not having a TV and why TV was bad, and now she has a TV? Or is it because he thinks another man gave it to her, right? Like, Probably both. Is he jealous or does he not want her to change? Probably both. Interesting. Probably both. Because, I mean, she doesn't want him mentioning Betty either. 
And if someone else gave him that, gave her that TV, that's a physical reminder that she's entertaining other people as well. Well, as she tells is. him she spent the night abroad. This is true. <laughs> Don has this line too, where like, and this is where he ends up. We see the like the what we saw in the last episode and i think be, be, definitely becomes a thing that like don draper like comes up with a pitch or something and you know the the draper magic where he talks about mysterious cowboy brings the cattle home safe <laughs> that's my that's a really bad john ham we'll cut that out um but the, the contrast between that kind of older version of masculinity and the idea and the past with what Kinsey is pitching with his crew of like, Hey, this aerosol can is futuristic, blah, blah, blah. Let's look to space. And he's like, no, 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 the future scares people. And then he does this very like, you know, kind of classic version of, of masculinity. I felt, I felt was interesting. Do, do we think that that's portending something else? Is that speaking to Don's, Don's worldview, or was he just exercising dominance over Kinsey, who thought he was hot shit with that pitch? I don't think it was dominance play at all. I think Don was definitely stuck in his own thoughts about Betty at the time and his own ability as a man to take care of his family. Uh, And that's why he talks about, you know, being the one who brings home the cattle, uh, the one who just cares for everyone and herds everyone into where they're supposed to be. Everyone gets home in one piece where they're supposed to. and I think it's really interesting that, you know, being an astronaut, especially in the 60s, that's a very lonely venture that has nothing to do with human connection or human attraction or anything like that. And that's what Don brings into it. Even, And I don't think it's just because he was focused with his own connection with his wife. I kind of think that that scene when Don is talking to uh, the junior execs, which are called the Hitler Youth at another point in this episode, I just wanted to sneak that in there somewhere because that was funny. Oh, when Don is talking to them and he is, you know, he's saying, like, we need to bring it back down to Earth. The future scares people. Like Annie was saying, like, we don't want to portray this, like, lonely, you know, existence, astronauts, etc., he says, he asked them, what do women want? And this is this thing that he's been working through, um, through this whole episode, and it's kind of affecting every single one of his interactions. But when the one character, and I can't think of his name, says, it's the copywriter. Is that Paul? Yeah, yeah. Paul Kinsey, yeah. When Paul says to Don that he has quit worrying about what women want. Don says, maybe I'll quit paying you. And I kind of feel like this is the realest we've seen Don be, Mm -hmm. at least at work or with this group, because he's not... um, He's not putting on a show. He's not trying to teach a lesson. Like, he's not being cheeky like he is focused in on the work and he's focused in on figuring out something real about his life and the boys you know can't tell and they're still doing their their jokey you know we they're they're back on their bullshit and don's like no like we're not doing this right now we're working this is a real thing that we need to be doing maybe i'll quit paying you and at that point i was like okay don like, I think that this might be maybe the one time or at least 
one of a handful of times that we've seen him do an interaction where he wasn't um he wasn't like manipulating the situation mm-hmm. for him like we talked about you know with the first episode like i don't think that he was working to get a result out of them like he wanted them there to do the work because that's what he's doing yeah like he's not playing around i love that yeah, and it, and it happens too after there's that earlier scene in his office where they are goofing around, and then Bert Cooper, who is like the head honcho with no shoes, by the way, which is an interesting quirk, um, yeah. comes in and, and he believes. The Colonel like, Sanders look isn't an interesting quirk yeah. enough for you. Know? <laughs> yeah. I, yeah, no, fair enough. Um, but he's like, I thought Ster- Roger Sterling was the reason for the Navy attitude in here, and he like seems disappointed, and I wonder how much. He doesn't really chide Don directly, but he speaks to it mm-hmm. and he kind of catches Don in the sanctum of his office. Because I definitely think there's like an idea of that that space having a certain power in, in the office. Right. So I wonder, too, of how much of Don's choice is like, no, we're here to work. How much of that's him dealing with what he's dealing with? How much of that is informed by and choosing to entertain with the the Navy, the Navy attitude, quote, on the frivolity and the the fraternity of, of the, the junior execs and then getting chided on it, albeit indirectly. But yeah, no, it's interesting. Would you say that Don's office is the ladies' room for the marketing executives? I was literally just about to say that. <laughs> <laughs> I love you. Uh, yeah, no, I thought it was like a really interesting contrast to the, the moments that we see with the women in the ladies' room because instead of trying to be more open, more vulnerable, taking that moment to be real and center yourself before heading back out and out there with the, among the wolves. It's just like, no, the wolves are here. The wolves are here. It's just like you're swimming in testosterone. You've got Alpha Don just hanging back. They will do and listen to anything he says. The second he makes a comment about trying on the, the deodorant, you know, they're making references about, you know, pretend like it's prom night, which is gross. You can be the girl. You can be the girl. Ugh. And they all hold him down. Hitler, Fucking, you. Don't make me feel bad about Ken Crosgrove. Do not. Um, no. <laughs> I don't want to feel bad for that man right now. But, you know. It's a taste of his own medicine, I'm sure. Absolutely. Oh, 100%. But it's like, it's a moment you've seen just like with like I'm pretty sure you've seen that in like the movie Grease. It's just this like epitome all male interaction where they could have this opportunity to be like real people, but instead they're just going to peacock and play around and fight and just do everything they can to make Alpha Don, Alpha Don super happy and approve for the, approve of them. It's it would be hard to work for Don Draper, I think, because thinking about these two scenes in contrast with each other, like how do you know when we're working and when we're joking? Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, you could also pay I, attention. That's true. That's true. Um, but when they do get caught, you know, messing around, Don covers for them. Like he does not throw any of them under the bus with you know the big bus. He says. Uh, some joke he's oh uh a brazier account we just found out we couldn't sell them to men or whatever like it's not like he he doesn't chide them he you know he does seem kind of protective of this like gaggle of idiots yeah it is that is (laughs) the that is in a weird perverse way a sign of a good leader 
So, I mean, he is the head of this little middle group for a reason. Like, Pete would super throw him under a bus, 100%. Probably yeah. can, too. Pete tried to throw Don under a bus. I mean, he's not even in this episode. So don't <laughs> need to talk about him. <laughs> it is kind of amazing how he is such a pervasive presence, even though he's in Niagara with his really, yeah. really bad jokes. He's in so many scenes without being in the actual episode. So you both just gave me chills talking about Don's office and the idea of that that sanctum and and it being like like the the quote unquote kind of ladies room and that similar experience and what just what when you when you both said that what really struck out to me was in the actual ladies room at the start of the episode which we've talked about you have that exchange between Mona Sterling and Betty Draper where Betty is seeking that connection as we've talked about as we mentioned before in Don's office which perhaps holds that similar space you have don draper trying to reach out to to another sterling roger and then also getting rebuffed Mm -hmm. so interesting Mm -hmm. yeah especially when you hear that when you hear roger or remember roger saying i think i know more about your wife than i do about my own so it's they're kind of similar in a way i don't know there's something about these married married couples where i just look at them and think why are you married? How did you get married when it seems like you guys don't speak to each other at all? I mean, they look great. That's kind of it. Well, there you go. So I just have, um, I guess just one last, like quick thought about Don before we move on to, uh, you know, our last big character study for this episode. But that is that this is now the second episode where throughout the whole episode, I'm thinking to myself, look at Don Draper. Like, he's such a decent dude. And then within the last, like, three minutes, he's trash. Is this going to be every single episode? (laughs) I'm honestly, I can't promise you no. Like, he almost had me i'm like you went through this whole journey of like trying to figure out what women want and like yeah you mind your girlfriend for information but we're just gonna put that on the back burner of my mind for this moment (laughs) like you got your wife to therapy you took her to a nice dinner like you got her this like he tries several methods even like he says like oh i you know when i said you had everything i forgot about this and like gives her a pretty watch and like that's like not the right exact move, but it's at least a try. And he continues to try until she gets to therapy. And it's like the therapist, you know, is talking to her and that's great. And the therapist even confirms to Don, like, I think you're doing the right thing, but you're not supposed to call your wife's therapist and say, Hey, do you care about doctor patient confidentiality? Yeah. uh, Asking your wife's therapist, what she says in her therapy session is not the way to find out what she wants. No! No, 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 no. No, it's gross. It's manipulative. It crosses so many boundaries. You can't even really make the argument of like, oh, he's trying to be helpful in a real, but like missing the point. I was like, no, it's just bad. Ask your wife. You were just at dinner with her. What what did you talk about? Uh, probably tomato juice. Oh my god. But yeah, so I'm not I'm not (laughs) That was really cute when he told her that joke. He looks so proud of that moment. He was really looked like he really looked like he was trying to make her happy in that moment. 
I'm not letting him trick me again. <laughs> well, and what I want to know is, does does the therapist do this with all his like patients? Like honestly, like probably, probably. Yeah, but it's a dude therapist. What was really interesting was when he called a therapist. Was how much and how fast the therapist talked. Uh, spoke because when Betty was in that moment being like all beautifully vulnerable and nervous and anxious and trying to say real things, but also trying to um, trying to divert from the real emotions, that therapist in this, in the shot never says anything to her, not a single word when he is on screen. Yeah. And compared well, he's to he's not the, working for her. No, but I just thought it was so interesting where he's like, I don't talk to 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 the woman. I will talk to her husband. Yeah. Oh, the therapist is trash. He is also trash. He is very good at pretending not to be trash, but behind closed doors, trash. Like, that's so terrifying to think that you may go to therapy, you may have this moment that, uh, that you know, a step of many to, to, to healing, and you're like, oh, no. It's like someone reading your, di- like, trying to write in your journal and knowing that someone's going to find it. It's impossible. Oof. No, like I have on my checklist next time I go to my parents' house to burn my journals from my childhood. <laughs> no, I have this like anxiety clench in my chest just thinking if I did like regularly <laughs> keep journals, even opening them and be like, nope, nope, can't do it. I don't want to learn anything about myself today. I suspect that that Betty's also the kind of person who would find it indulgent and, and feel really uncomfortable. Even if she was guaranteed no one else would read it, she wouldn't be the kind of person who's like, yes, I'm going to write this out. Betty's diary would be like, today was a beautiful day. We picked flowers. I had lunch with my friend. Our kids played and they made no noise and they were perfect angel baby children. Yeah. Like yeah. her diary would be something that if Don read it, he would be like, look at my little wife yeah. yeah oh this is great outfit of the day every single day yeah yeah i was gonna say her diary would be her instagram account it would be that curated and perfect and like it would be know. a record of what clothes she wore so she yeah. never repeated the same combination oh ab- yeah. yeah for sure she was i mean you kind of have to think about like um uh what's her face margaret mazel miss mazel in the first episode when she's like taking the measurements of her waist oh god and it's, it's so every awful. day yeah, the no, pressure of that sounds so. It would be maddening. Guys, I'm kind of hungry. Do you want to go get lunch? Oh yes, uh, yes. Well, actually, I wasn't planning on eating. I was gonna say I brought my lunch. <laughs> <laughs> what you were saying about Betty and how she felt like a more realized person in this very first episode than you felt like with any other character, I think. Peggy kind of falls into that trap right there where she does end up being just this stock idea of a new innocent girl in the predatory office. Um, Because even though we have these like quiet moments of her, of her in the ladies room as well and uh, reaching out and seeing other people crying and wanting to be like, Oh my gosh, are you okay? Uh, Totally forgot my train of thought. No. Um, but at the same time, I mean, it's really hard not to sympathize with her because of what she does go through. I mean, you get this really good flirt happening with Paul Kinsey and him, uh, you know, 
very smoothly being all using that sympathy beyond like you want to buy me lunch but then still paying for it and he kind of like slowly takes her away from everyone else and isolates her but not in a creepy kind of way um which is kind of kind of sweet it was really really nice chemistry i thought um, it was, but the fact that it comes after him, like giving her shit for going to lunch with Joan and the boys, that like that true. whole thing was kind of off-putting to me because, um, he does he ask her to lunch even, or like they just talk about lunch and she's like, oh, I eat at my desk, and he's like, okay, cool, and then later he's like, oh, you went to lunch with other people, and she's like, uh. Sorry. <laughs> like, <laughs> okay. Um. I think he asks her, and Joan, like, sees Kinsey talking to Peggy about how he, she's bringing lunch, and she says, no, I have some work to do. And then after you see this reaction shot of Joan noticing, Joan comes over, has a very similar conversation about how sad Peggy's lunch looks, and then says, hey, let's go, and then mm-hmm. runs into the rest of the... The boys. So I don't know if the Kinsey Peggy interaction informed Jones' choice, or if this okay. is part of part of Jones' oscillation between appearing nice and supportive and mentoring, and actually then being really cruel to Peggy. Like I, that, I don't know. But I think Paul is does invite Paul her. Peggy says no. The guy who Joan refers to as the mistake she made when she's giving Peggy her first tour. I don't remember. At some point, a lot of these guys genuinely look the same to me. Yeah, I don't. I don't think so. I mean, it's, it's been it's been a minute since I watched the first one, but I don't. I don't think so. I think Kinsey might flirt with Joan or make some look or something, but I don't. I don't think they've been intimate. And maybe some okay. other brunette white guy in a suit. Yes, exactly. Right. Kinsey's okay. definitely more of a sweat, a cardigan kind of guy, anyways. He does seem separated from the rest of the junior execs. Um, he kind of makes fun of them a little bit on his tour. He, you know, doesn't go to lunch with them. Um, he try, he really tries to set himself apart from them. Uh, but then when it comes down to it, he does the exact same shit that they would do. Just in like a quieter and like honestly, yeah, more dangerous way. Yeah, yeah, it is a little predatory how he manages to like separate her, and it is fully terrible the way he doesn't seem to be like immediately think, oh, she doesn't want this. He immediately thinks there's another man, and that's a line it's I won't gone. cross. Not only yeah. that, but she she's saying, like, I I think we misunderstood each other. And he's like, oh, there's someone else. Like, sir, you don't think for five seconds that the misunderstanding could possibly be that homegirl doesn't want to fuck you in your yeah. office over lunch? Like, you don't think that maybe, like, the misunderstanding is not that she's not interested in you, is that this is a wildly inappropriate behavior? Yeah, like that this would totally happen if there wasn't another man who got there first yeah. and is in between them. And then he compares her to a chair. Yeah. I don't even like to sit in Don's chair. Oh, oh, oh. Oh, um, good. She's a chair. Yeah. She's someone else's no. chair. No, Kinsey's totally like, 
And I think I, I wrote down in my, my notes that when he's talking about if the Twilight Zone gets cancelled, he'll kill himself, or you don't know the Twilight Zone, blah, 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 blah. He kind I don't of had, like science I, fiction. When he said he would kill himself if the Twilight yeah. Zone got cancelled, I felt very seen. Yeah. <laughs> but, and then, Not this that is, I love the Twilight Zone, but just like, I don't like when things I love get cancelled. <laughs> yeah, well, fair enough. Um, but this is going to kind of date myself, but he was giving me like major Seth Cohen from the OC vibes <laughs> where it's like, hey, I'm I'm different. I'm quirky. I'm not like all these other, you know, Krogmagnon Hitler youth that, you know, Harbor High or Sterling Cooper. So it's like because I'm different, because I'm being a nice guy, it like he definitely thinks he's still- more woke. Yeah, exactly. And then there's the entitlement that goes with it. It's like, hey, girl, I'm such an ally. Don't you want to reward me by, like, you know, hooking up in my office? It's like, no, no, bro. No. No. You le- you learned the words, but not you didn't do the work internally. Yeah, you're not um, getting it. No, the Twilight yeah. the twilight Zone thing reminded me of a moment in, I think it was in The Big Sick, where Emily is over at, oh, what's his name in the show? Is his name... Kumail in the show. I think it's still Kumail. Okay. When Emily is at Kumail's place and he's making her watch his favorite movie and she's just like, it's super hot the way you're just watching me watch the show to make sure, you know, to make sure I pass this test. Yeah. He was like, cool, another dude just enforcing his tastes upon someone. It was nice and fun and just a little bit flirty up until that moment inside his office. And I was like, why did you have to ruin it with your bullshit? Yeah, like, I really think that if instead of being like, I'll put the fucking couch in front of the door or whatever, if he would have been like, oh, how about later tonight I can feed you dinner? Like, she would have been like, cool, let's do that. (laughs) Or even just like, oh, sorry, have a nice afternoon. That would have been fine. That would have taken fewer words and no moving of large furniture. He moves that couch so quickly, too. It's like he'd, he'd been like, and this is where like the predatory thing comes in. It's like he'd been planning it, right? Like, because she hasn't even turned around to see what he's doing and he has the couch in front of the door, right? So. Yeah, and he just like slips in yeah. there. It's not like weirdly aggressive. It just, he just appears on her face. Ugh. It's so I hate when they just appear on your face. <laughs> Me too. It just happens sometimes and you can't react. Because like if it, it was someone who's just like forcing himself upon her, you could see her probably reacting and immediately like hitting him out of reflex. But this is just like you're just here now. What do I I don't you know, everything short circuits. Ugh. Yeah, what a disappointment. I mean, they really did have some, like, cute workplace flirting, but then he has to go to, like, typical dude. Yeah. (laughs) Typical in every single way, too. Like, seems fine, like, is doing all the nice things, and then wants to take it 52,000 steps too far, like, immediately. And then instead of understanding that they've done something to cause this rejection, they're like, oh, you must have a boyfriend. Yeah. It ain't you, it's him. It's like, cool, you weren't just being nice, you were just thinking with your dick this entire time. Got it. Yeah. Taking note. Yeah. Great. Yeah. And I, like, I don't blame her at all later when she's so put off that she's unable to write all these letters because probably like Betty, her hands were shaking and she wasn't focused and she was probably really anxious 
because she, you know, the scene where everything's in slow motion and she just sees all these men looking over at her. It's like, you know, vultures circling meat. And she's just stuck there. And Joan makes sure that makes sure that she stays right there in that spot, too. She doesn't have an escape route. Well, and then Joan, like, basically, like, says, oh, this happens to you a lot, doesn't it? Oh, it doesn't? Well, like, enjoy the detention while it happens. And it's just, like, so cruel. Yeah. I was going to say, I, like, Joan is very in possession of a lot of her, like, innate femininity and her own personal power. But at the same time, she's so entrenched into this very old-fashioned, like, patriarchal way of thinking that it just limits her and it's so frustrating to see because you know she can do more. You can see the way she can like control just the masses, but this is how she uses it. Yeah, I mean, she manipulates those boys into taking them to lunch in the first place. Yes, she does. And then, you know, when they're super gross to Peggy, she just smokes her cigarette, doesn't stand up for her, doesn't, doesn't join in, but also, you know, it's very like, this is just what happens. There's nothing it's I can okay, do about let's it. Let's go. Yeah. yeah, and it's frustrating and it's sad, but mostly frustrating. Yeah, I really felt for Peggy when she was saying, "How come anytime somebody takes you to lunch around here, you're the dessert?" <laughs> that was such a good line. It's such a good way to put it too, but it's just like you see her getting frustrated with this, and it's nice to see Peggy have a feeling that I understand. <laughs> Oh, absolutely. Because it somehow becomes your fault for not, or her fault for not being able to handle it and not deal with it and brush it off. But, you know, when you feel like people are just targeting you constantly for one thing or another, and she's legitimately there trying to do a good job and um, do well by herself and probably her family. And this is just what happens. And this is also what still happens. It makes me think, like I just suddenly had like flashbacks when we all learned about Harvey Weinstein and all those awesome stories of women just trying to get by and trying to make their place and someone being and then often being punished for standing up for themselves and um, feeling targeted. Uh, this might be a good place to remind ourselves and anyone listening that that's what happened to Cater Gordon with Matthew Weiner. Which is insane to think. Um that that same person is one who's writing these lines, these scenarios, and these, these characters in a way that I feel is very true to so many of us. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, but to wrap up, Peggy, I, you know, we end the episode with her in the bathroom. Um, did you guys get the feeling that when she first walked into the bathroom, it was because she was going to cry? <laughs> Oh, for and sure. And then she, you know, takes a look in the mirror and I, I think just straight up changes her mind <laughs> and is just like, nope, yeah. I'm not doing that. Like, you're not getting that from me. I'm not going to have people walking into this bathroom and seeing me cry. Yeah, I think for sure. I, I do think seeing the other nameless face in there, just another per- another woman who's there crying over something that happened and feeling broken I do think there's something in that. You you can like physically see her resolve steal up. She's mm-hmm. like, nope, not today. Not today. Yeah, which the end, the 
The end shot of Peggy in this episode is much more compelling to me than the end shot of Peggy in the first episode. (laughs) (laughs) Where I'm kind of excited for Pete to get back because I just want, (laughs) like, scenes with them so that I can understand what the fuck happened. (laughs) Why do you think she kept the postcard? That's a great question. I wonder, is it because she wanted to be close to him or did she just not want to look at it unless she chose to look at it did she want to pretend that he sent it to her (laughs) which is gross because it has like the worst joke in it ever (laughs) that he wrote on his honeymoon yeah oh god he is the worst (laughs) really is it, is it, I mean, Roger was the worst in this episode, but doesn't he have the, wasn't it him who has the really good burn on Pete that says, Niagara Falls, eh? He really, in like all realms, he lacks imagination or something that like that. That boy redefines lack of yeah, imagination. Yes. Yeah, that's what it was. That's what it was. He really is terrible also to be in a creative endeavor. Profession. Yeah. No, I'm, I'm still not 100% sure if I understand why she kept it. I don't understand anything about Peggy and Pete. Uh, the last couple minutes of the episode one played when I logged into Netflix to watch episode two. And I was just kind of like watching them more and seeing, I don't know, this excitement kind of flash over Peggy's face. And I don't mm. still don't know if it was this, you know, having this moment where she's like, oh, I'm a girl, I'm a woman in the city now. One of the executives has noticed me. If it was just getting someone's attention or if it was just her starting to be all like, ooh, this is the person that I've been not, I haven't been this whole entire time and maybe I get to try it out. So I'm, but then. Well, like if she was just interested in like, like someone like in a power position at the company, like all she had to do was wait for another one to hit on her. Yeah. I don't think. She, yeah. I wonder if in this episode, she's like regretting her pick because she's like, Oh, I could have like slept with one that wasn't getting married. Yeah. I don't know if it's just like some, maybe he reminds her of that time that of who she was in that moment. But also I think maybe it's one of those things where, she is sort of regretting having a one night stand situation and she's convincing herself it's a real affection and attaching herself to the worst human being. Yeah, it's just an all around choice I don't get. <laughs> yeah. Well, because if she does sleep with with Kinsey, that means she really is just sleeping around. Right. And just because you're on birth control doesn't mean you can run around being the strumpet. No, especially not on day one of getting it. (laughs) That was the other thought I had when I watched the episode. I'm like, you were literally at the doctor's this morning. That's not how well it works. Your doctor should have explained this to you, but he's also a terrible doctor. Well, he was too busy smoking. Her doctor literally thinks that, like, she didn't need to know that because he thinks that, like, his words of encouragement and, like, sex shaming was going to prevent her from ever having any sex. So many problems. Also, his, like, (laughs) just to be that person. His technique was awful. I was watching him percuss her abdomen. It was very terrible. That's not how you do it. Oh, well, there you go. He's a genuine, like, literally a bad doctor. Can you hear the quacking from here? 
<laughs> Not a lot of trust in modern in Western medicine at this time. <laughs> and so another thing, actually, before we like start wrapping up, uh, film noir and this time period, because a lot of that was from like the 1920s to the 1950s. A lot of it came after uh, World War One, through the period of after World War Two, and up until the 50s. And I didn't really think about it this way until I was listening to an interview with Donald Gleason, who is is very interested in film noir. And he was talking about how it a lot of it was a reaction to women in the workplace uh, during during the times of, you know, global war and then men coming back and, uh, you know, women being empowered and, and their reaction to it. And that's why you have so many female characters that are so distrustful uh, and that you oh. can't really figure out what they want. They all have these agendas and h- half the time they're asking for help, but also terrible. You know, that's, you see a lot of the horror Madonna kind of thing happening there. And so I was thinking about a lot of that, mostly because Don came in at some point with his trench coat and his fedora and it just struck that, that very typical film noir trope with the detective and everything and how so much of the, that genre is about the reoppression of women into like the domestic role. And Betty is so much that she's someone who is trying to be a real person, but she's forced into this role and her reaction to it and how it's expressing itself and how Don is trying to adjust to it as well. But he doesn't know how he doesn't have the tools or the understanding that a person can be that and that he can be a person who's okay with that. So I don't really have a point to this, just something that has been playing in my mind um, while I watch this episode. All right, cool. So do we have anything we need to talk about before we wrap up this episode? No, I think that's about everything we can get out of this episode. Shall we look forward to next time when we'll be covering episode three of Mad Men the name of which I will tell you in one second as I google this <laughs> okay so in the meantime Matt can you tell us where else to find you on the internet you can find me on twitter at at m-a-t-t-y-h-u-g-h where I tweet about everything from Star Trek to local Edmonton politics we just got e-scooters it's a thing stay tuned <laughs> You can find me on Twitter at Mellow Yellow. That's M-E-L-L-O-O Yellow. And you can check me out co-hosting another podcast called Wild Pretty Things, covering TV, movies, and sometimes comic books. Annie, what is the title of Mad Men Episode 3, and where can we find you on the internet? It is called The Marriage of Figaro, which is definitely a reference to something. Uh, you can find me on Twitter and on Instagram at Pop Artery. P-O-P-A-R-T-E-R-Y. You can also find me in my other podcast, reading through the works of Jane Austen, uh, called The Daily Nightly at thedailynightly.com. Awesome. Thank you so much. Well, tune in next time. Talk to you guys later. Bye. Later days. For anyone interested, The Apartment is available on Amazon Prime in America and Double Indemnity is available on Stars. There we go. It's, 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 uh, maybe I can talk to our other friends who have a podcast and they, they go through Shame Files. And Melissa's been on it and you should listen to it. It was really good. They talked about Office Space. But maybe I can pitch Ryan on that if he hasn't seen it yet. So.